The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a killer flees through time and the Gordian Division gives chase. Jane North uncovers a secret plot and history gets remade. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshairad. This week, we bring you part two of our interview with David Weber and Jacob Holo, as they discuss The Janus File, the newest novel in the Gordian Division series. But first, the news. The October hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up, The Janus File by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. It was supposed to be a routine trip for the members of the Gordian Division, both human and AI fly out to Saturn, inspect the construction of their latest time machines, then fly back. But when the division's top scientist and chief engineer are killed in the same freak accident, suspicions of foul play run deep. Detective Isaac Cho is sent in to investigate. Despite his objections, Cho is stuck with an untested partner on a case that increasingly reeks of murder and conspiracy. The unlikely pair must work together to unravel this mystery, and soon they discover their unique combination of skills might just provide the edge they need. But nothing is ever simple where the Gordian Division is involved, not even time itself. Next, we have the latest installment in PC Hodgel's Kinserath series, Deathless Gods. Jamethil North, Priest's Bane and Dreamweaver has returned victorious from Ty Tastagon, but trouble dogs the Kinserath. The Randir and his allies want the larger houses to decide for all nine, which would strip the High Lordship from the north. At Amaroth, a senile king struggles against his venal son-in-law. Kindry Soulwalker is captured and thrown in a secret dungeon, a political prisoner. Now Jame rides south to Bashti. Here she confronts an unready and presumptuous heir, a withholding and manipulative paymaster, and invisible assassins. Her formal errand, meanwhile, is to compete in martial games with secret stakes, which she fears are a cloak for a massacre or worse. We also have an Ishmael Jones novel by Simon R. Green entitled The Dark Side of the Road. Call him Ishmael, Ishmael Jones. He makes his living solving mysteries and uncovering dark secrets some would prefer to stay hidden. But when he's invited by his employer, a man known only as the Colonel, to spend Christmas at the Colonel's sprawling country house, Ishmael Jones decides to come in from the dark for some holiday cheer. Jones arrives at the remote Bellencourt Manor in the midst of a blizzard, only to discover that the colonel has gone missing. It soon becomes clear that the guests are harboring dark secrets and that it will be up to Ishmael Jones to stop a savage killer. And finally, we have Eric Flint's 1824, The Arkansas War. 
The relocation of the Southern Indian tribes to Oklahoma following the War of 1812 also swept up many Black inhabitants of North America. Having nowhere else to go, they joined the migration of the Southern Indian tribes and settled in Arkansas. What results by 1824 is a hybrid nation of Indians, Black people, and a number of white settlers as well, a situation which is intolerable for the slaveholding states. Henry Clay has his eye on the presidency and sides with the slaveholding states, but Sam Houston and his friends and allies are building a powerful army of their own in Arkansas. It's time to change history itself. That's the Janus file, Deathless Gods, The Dark Side of the Road, and 1824, The Arkansas War, all available now. And that's it for the news. Not to give anything away, but we talked about how the Janus file follows a pair of investigators as they uh, uh, check out a murder. Um, having had some uh, personal experience in that area, I was quite excited to find the investigation and its procedures were really well handled, uh, with even the occasional tension between local and federal investigative arms uh, well portrayed, even within Cisco. Uh, did that uh, realism come about from research? You already mentioned uh, the one series of books that you were reading, uh, or, or, or did, you, did you do any more additional research to kind of uh, flesh that out? Uh no, it was just uh, a whole lot of Ed McBain books. Um, and then just sort of, uh, you know, I, I was, as I was reading them, I was actually keeping, uh, keeping some handwritten notes, which is actually fairly unusual for me. I try to remain as paperless as possible, um, but I didn't really want to like have my laptop out while I'm also, you know, reading, uh, reading these books. Um, so I was like constantly jotting down ideas and things that, oh, well, you know, I could, uh, <clears throat> I think one of the, uh, one of the things that I think it was the second um, 87th Precinct novel where there was a riverboat casino. And I'm like, hey, I, I can, uh, I can put something like that and sci-fi it up, you know, as, you know, as outside, you know, their, their regular jurisdiction. And so then, you know, came up with the idea for the, uh, the floating resort um, in Saturn's atmosphere that's, that's outside their, uh, Cisco's uh, legal jurisdiction and a few a few other things like that. Um, so really, I mean, for me, a lot of it was paying attention to you know, kind of structurally and stylistically what uh, Ed McBain did with that series, and you know, executing it uh, with this story. Um, I mean, of course, you know, I encountered you know murder mysteries and police procedurals before but uh th those books were the first time where i really was like you know encountered literature that dug into like the actual process and you know you got a sense for the <clears throat> the, the the structure of the organization um not just like you know a detective in isolation, but there's, you know, there's the forensics group and there's, you know, the death sergeant and, you know, the, the other, you know, like the, uh, the people managing the precinct and, Ed, and whatnot. Ed McBain is Hill Street Blues, not CSI. Right. Okay. And I thought Jacob captured that really well. The other side is Jacob is a really good researcher. 
Okay, but the other thing that he does that I think you have to do if you're going to write, if you're going to be a storyteller, and especially if you're going to write in a science fiction, uh, in a universe not our own at, at the time that we're writing, you have to be able to extrapolate naturally. You have to be aware of the ramifications not just for the characters interacting with one another, but for their interacting with their environment. And that's one of the things that I think uh, McBain, especially, I have, I've read a lot of police procedurals. It's been a while since that was my primary focus. Of all of them, I thought all the ones that were available at the time that I was reading them, I thought McBain was head and shoulders uh, above the, the the rest of the crowd. But he's writing about serious police work done by human beings. He's not writing an adventure story that happens to be set in an environment where somebody committed a crime. Okay, they're, they're not looking for serial killers every week in the 87th precinct. Okay, right. they're dealing with all kinds of stuff going on. The only other police procedural that I think really kind of sort of measures up to McBain are the Gideon novels from the UK, mm -hmm. uh, which come at it from a different perspective because of who Gideon is. But in both cases, you've got that human beings working together to unravel what happened here. And they don't always succeed. Okay, which is another thing that's real police work. Oh, yeah. Okay, you don't close every case. Now, we do close the case here, and we probably will close most of the cases that, that get handed to them. But I'm hoping and planning that somewhere along the way, we're going to have side avenues that never get resolved, never get answered. Where at the end of the book, the characters are still looking at each other, you know, what the hell is that all about? And it's like, I don't know, man, you know, uh, kind of thing. Because that happens in real life. Yes, it okay. does. Very much so. One of the other things that I picked up, and this, this isn't every um, <clears throat> Ed McBain book that I read, but a few of them would have, um, there would be like, you know, like the A plot crime, and there would also be like a B plot crime. And sometimes the B plot crime would be, have a kind of a humorous bent to it. Mm. And, and so that's where the, uh, the, the idea for the apple cipher <laughs> yeah. came up. Well, and I, I, I appreciated that too, because again, that was the, uh, when you're trying to, uh, you know, reason why it is they don't have all of the resources you would think that they would have to investigate this particular crime, that was a good reason because one of the things that often happened was is that the squeaky wheel gets the oil and everybody's squeaking about this this thing oh, if you, going and it, if, it is a major issue but if it, you think if you think there's a squeaky wheel in this one <laughs> just wait <laughs> but that, that that squeaky wheel getting the oil is what really happens like all the attention yeah. all the funding goes to a particular type of crime or a particular uh, high profile crime yeah. and not necessarily to where it needs to go yeah right. jacob who's the 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 uh 
the the guy who actually pulls uh Isaac out for the file Mickey what's his name he's the 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 socially inept oh, you know who I'm Mitch. talking about yes Mitch yes Mitch, Mitch. I think Mitch is probably somebody you'd avoid in real life. Yeah, actually, actually, I was thinking the same thing. I, I momentarily, Mitch had slipped my memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, avoid Mitch like the plague. But, <laughs> He's but, not well socially adjusted. But Mitch has, you're talking about the squeaky wheel. Okay, Mitch is one of those people. He's he's in charge of personnel assignments and whatnot, and he is like, you know, I am sick and tired of this, you know, crime that has the media is following it. It's where all the resources are going, et cetera. So he's constantly fighting that fight right. from inside, um, inside Cispol, um, and I like that. I think. I think we may so far have developed that better on Cispol's side than on admin side, because we've seen more of yeah, the inside of Cispol's politics and whatnot being involved. But I'm sure that when we spend a little more time in admin, we are going to find that they too. Well, I don't know, because Shigeki's pretty damn ruthless about <laughs> which wheel gets oiled. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that again, that was one of those things that really resonated for me was the the in in the initial phase of the investigation, they run up against the local police department uh, who has a different focus. And oh yeah, that interaction in the squad room was again. I was like, oh yeah, I've been there. I've been in that room. <laughs> well, one of the things, one of the pieces of feedback that um, Tony provided uh, to the uh, initial. Um, uh, uh, outline that that Dave and I had presented, which was much more of a thriller than yeah. a, a police procedural, which was yeah. one of her says, "Hey, you know, shift shift more in this direction." Is that she wanted to get a sense for you know the organization, how the different levels of the organization fit together and whatnot, and I that's where I you know I came up with the idea is like, hey, we can you know show you know this. Uh, this event getting flagged, the murder, at a very high level. Well, how does it get down to Isaac and Susan? Right. And so you, you kind of get to to see this 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 order, you know, moving down through the various layers of the bureaucracy, and we also get to have some fun moments. Right. With that, the the uh, the scene with the uh, the chief inspector, um, the the. The idea for that actually came from the, uh, for, for me, the movie uh, Highlander, uh, where you have the scene where the, the, the cops are um, at, a, at a hot dog stand and, and, and the, the guy is, is, is reading from, from the, the newspaper and he, he says, you know, what, what does incompetent mean? You know, and asking the places, what does baffled mean? <laughs> He's saying it with a very thick accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and well, they're trying I, to ignore him. Well, one I, of one of the the things that I think works very well in this book is that the hierarchy, the 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 organizational structure, is so natural that the reader never realizes the reader is actually being deliberately shown the hierarchy. Right. If you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. 
yep. it flows inevitably through there and the reader doesn't realize unless they stand back and take a look at it right. that this is part of the unpacking of mm. of the entire the entire universe the entire matrix that you've built um good storytelling works that way no matter what it is you're unpacking right okay but i think it's harder sometimes when you're dealing with a military or a police organization one that has a fairly strict hierarchy of authority and responsibility it can get harder to do that smoothly right and i thought it flowed very well in this case yep so did i i I, uh, like i said i i didn't most of the time when i'm reading stuff i i tend to be like okay well, uh, and I had none of those experiences in, in this one. So uh, again, I have, I have worked, how you did it. I've worked with Tony for thirty plus years now. Okay, she is one of the very few voices that I totally implicitly trust. There have been occasions when she and I have have disagreed, but it's been a matter of focus not whether or not there's a problem okay and i think that the direction the input that she gave us before we went back to the the second run at this i think it was incredibly valuable um and, and that's I th- that's something that you know obviously i'm very early in my working relationship with with tony but it's it's something that has you know very quickly struck me about you know how um how good her instinct instinct when it comes to you know storytelling is, and um, I mean I remember you know I I got the the initial feedback uh, concerning the the, the first um, proposal, and it's like well this is this is a thriller we, we we need police procedural go read this, and I'm like well what's wrong with it being a police uh, uh, being a thriller right. okay and I started reading it's like ah ah now that's i what... understand <laughs> i think she's now flicked... i get what she's after she's okay. certainly flicked on the lights for quite a number of storytellers uh, over yes. the course of her career i think i think that i work with jim bain too okay jim was fantastic but i really have to say that i think in some respects tony has better instincts okay um and one of the uh advantages of being traditionally published when you have someone with her instincts become available is that outside voice that i think a lot of of indies and Mm -hmm. self-published authors and there are some very very good ones out there okay i'm not saying that that route doesn't work what i'm saying is that it's a resource that is incredibly valuable when you find it well it's, uh, it's like the co-author deal right you, yeah. you have another set of eyes that are aware of things it, this is almost a three-party collaboration in some respects right. okay um now tony does not as a general rule um edit me as hard as hard is probably not the right word um yeah well she doesn't essentially you reach a point where you have you have a working relationship in which the author the editor 
know the areas in which they can trust the other party to do their job. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's also, to be totally honest, there is a moment that comes when you are, for want of a better term, you've earned your spurs. Okay. And right. you get a little, I, I still remember uncompromising honor. Okay. Sharon and I were up in Wake Forest uh, and uh, Tony was like, well, I sat down because it's a big book. I sat down to see what we could, we could trim. I said, yeah. She said, you need to add two scenes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, but this is, storytelling is a craft. Okay. Um, and I think it's like any craft in that there are, journeyman levels and master levels and 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 whatnot um and it doesn't mean that somebody who's been doing it for 30 years can turn around and tell somebody who's been doing it for 10 no that's that's wrong i mean they can but that is the worst possible form of that, that that's another thing about tony okay tony will tell you there's a problem but then she'll let you go fix it. Right. Okay. And that's hugely important. And that's how this book wound up where this book was. I mean, she told us, okay, this is where I think you need to be shifting focus. And here I think is something that David, I know you've already read these. Okay. We need to expose Jacob to them too on the, on the Ed McBain's and huge impact on where this book wound up and I think how well it succeeds. Oh, cool. now, the, uh, um, the response to the, the, the second proposal was basically do that, but add one more false lead. <laughs> right. Well, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. So uh, speaking of which, the uh, one of the things that's going on in this is the, the uh, it's trying to figure out the motive of the uh, antagonist and why it was they they did what they did, um, which seems to surround some stuff about uh, the the time travel technology, which I guess would be harken back to the original uh, uh, protocol books. Mm -hmm. um, so, how much of that was like, okay, well, here's what we were going to have for the crime. It sounds like Jacob that you had decided that the, here's what the crime is. And now we've got to work, kind of work around it and figure out where we're going to, how we're going to assemble the rest of it. Um, but the, uh, with that technology, did you guys kind of sit down and go, okay, well, here's all the different ways somebody could abuse the, this. And then we have the legal system and what would the response be? Or was it just more like, okay, well, this is what we got to have happen and kind of work from there. Um, I mean, the, uh, I, I can't say that because and I, I, I think I have a response. I'm like, I can't say that because that's a spoiler. So, so give me a moment here. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously we have the, the underlying framework that was established in the Gordian protocol and the Valkyrie protocol that um, you have, you know, time travel has a, a huge potential to be dangerous. Right. Um, and, and dangerous on an existential level. Um, and so there, there have to be, you know, um, 
it, it is a restricted technology. It's a restricted technology in both Cisgov and the admin. And it is heavily, heavily restricted in both of them, though not exactly to the same degrees. Um, and admin was ahead of CISGov in that respect for different reasons when they first met. It was much more broadly available in CISPAL for research organizations and so forth than in admin. So, you know, having, you know, um, a, a crime being being related to the technology, to, you know, um, the misuse of the technology or the, the illegal acquisition of the technology was, was a natural fit for the series. Right. Um, and then once you have the crime, you know, um, given how I like to, you know, approach these projects now, you know, now that I've, I've got some experience writing police procedurals, um, <clears throat> it is to kind of reverse engineer, you know, the, uh, the investigation from that, you know, initial crime. And, and from that, you know, it's like, it's like, I, I was, I was, you know, sometimes, you know, joking with, uh, with my wife, Heather, it's like, man, these, these things plot out themselves. This is great. I love this. <laughs> Well, I, I think also um, something that's some people, some storytellers don't seem to grasp, is that the limits on your characters are more important of the than the capabilities of your characters, and so you have to find a way to keep God weapon from emerging from the closet when when you need it, um, and so you have to place downsides on on the on the the technology that they can use you have to place limitations on it otherwise you get uh ring world right okay and larry eventually stopped writing ring world novels because he couldn't come up with a problem that he didn't already have the tech to fix and they're wonderful stories okay don't, don't get me wrong but that's why that series really came to well, it's, the, it's the comic book superhero yeah issue. you know it's with orange kryptonite and silver kryptonite and, uh, and chartreuse kryptonite and yeah and and that's one of the things that you know um uh, was very important to to both of us when we were writing uh the valkyrie protocol was that okay we we've established this framework we you know established some some of the penalties but there were also avenues that were available that from a, uh, a storytelling standpoint, the, the tool set was too powerful and it had to be pulled back. And the, the penalties for um, you know, uh, utilizing that part of the toolbox had to be made clear to the reader. Otherwise the reader's just gonna be like, well, why don't you just do that? Yeah. It's like, well, because of all the universes that Jacob destroyed in the previous books. Right. and was placed on a universe destroying diet for that's yeah. why we don't do that yeah. yeah well and the other thing about um the valkyrie protocol at the end of that novel in one sense there's an entire universe that never existed Okay. In another sense, Raybert has the entire history of that universe in his hands. He's he 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 has that at the end of it, and he has to 
ask himself a pretty existential question, which is, did any of it matter? Okay. Because, you know, and, and I think the answer that he comes to is, it would certainly work for me. Okay. Um, but we've, in setting up that particular limitation on the technology, we also almost as almost serendipitously gave us a reason the reader can understand why there aren't slews of time traveling societies around. Um, and again, there's a little bit of resonance with uh, the way that H. Beam Piper handled it because in his Paracop series, essentially the technology itself was so dangerous that only one world line actually dodged the bullet and survived. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of danger, you know, the whole nine yards, but there is that, how do you control to not have 14 different syspals, syscubs, uh, duking it out. Okay. Um, now on the one hand, it's like, why should we bother to duke it out with you? We have an entire universe of our own, you know, kind of thing. Um, but one of the things that I really, really, really like <coughs> about the Janus file and that whole, this whole, ongoing storyline with this character set and their level of integration into their society is that we can tell a whole bunch of really good stories that will explore all kinds of aspects and facets of these two different societies and cultures without turning it into an end of the universe uh uh, you know, or even necessarily the destruction of an entire uh, society, okay? Um, and that's good. Those are those are good stories to tell. I tend to write military science fiction, and as the series goes along, the stakes get more and more existential for the for the characters. Right. In this case, they're existential only on an individual level. Yeah. But it still matters. Absolutely. Okay. And it should. And I think that's something this book has captured very well. All right. So we're we're gonna move on to our, our penultimate question here on the Bane Free Radio. Uh what aside from its uh, considerable raw entertainment value do you hope readers will carry with them after reading the Janus file? So um, I, I, I actually, this, this is the question, you know, right when you, when you sent the question, says, this is the one I had to think about the most. Um, the, uh, I'd like the readers to take away uh, optimism. So, and what I, what I mean by that and where I'm going with that is that, um, you know, there's, it's, it's easy to get, you know, um, depressed by the news, by events, by, you know, the trajectory of our society, any number of things. 
Um, but, you know, I personally believe that we, we as a species um, are, are going to, you know, make it through to the next chapter, that we're going to, you know, um, you know, survive and thrive. Improvise, adapt, and overcome. Um, and, you know, we, we, we might, we're, we're going to get burned along the way. We've been burned before. We're, we're going to burn our fingers again. But, you know, we're, we're, we'll eventually, you know, get to, you know, the next stage of our society and it, it, it'll be a good thing. Um, and that's sort of what, you know, that optimism is part of the, the background DNA of um, the Growing Division series, because Siskov is a society a very prosperous society, a very peaceful society that has its stuff together and has reached that post-scarcity point. Admin is going through growing pains, <laughs> but you know they are making it work as painfully. You know they got a lot of painful steps along the way, but they'll eventually get there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, optimism. I think. I think I could I could get on board with that. That's actually an element of a lot of the stories that I tell. Um, we are, if you go back and you read 19th century newspapers, okay, divisiveness is not new, all right? I think that it is a lot more in our face today because of social media, because of internet, because of how loud the, the megaphone for the screamers has become. You can't go anywhere and ignore it. Um, and you're sitting here going, oh, what a friggin' idiot, you know, 90% of the time, no matter which side is doing the screaming. And here you have these people from these very different societies who seem to have remembered something that we have forgotten in our daily discourse today, which is that it's possible to simply be wrong. To, even if I'm right and you're wrong, you may be wrong in the sense of being a decent human being with a perspective that's different from mine, but that doesn't make you evil, okay? Isaac, especially when Susan is first coming over his horizon, is in the those evil people. There's a scene in this book where Raybert, it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire book, where Raybert is talking to Susan after something she's done. Okay. And Raybert, who probably of all the characters, except maybe Klaus in the um in the uh Guardian in 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 in, in the universes here, Raybert has the most reason to distrust, hate, and loathe admin. Okay. <clears throat> and even Raybert is beginning to no, he's not beginning. He has completed the recognition that he was painting with way too stark a brush 
based on the fact because i don't know they killed him they rendered his body down into mush they tried to destroy his universe and they spent the entire first book trying to kill him yeah what's there to be hostile about (laughs) so raybert has grown (laughs) why so sad yes why so serious all right well uh we're running to the end of our time here today. Uh, the last question I would have for you is what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you? And what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans to read? Ah, Jacob. Uh, well, um, Dave and I, were both going to be at uh, Setting Days, uh, which is a, a local convention for us. Um, I know I'm not going to be in any conventions until... Uh, next year or so, like Fantasy and Liberty <coughs> Con. Uh, stuff coming up. So uh, the Janus File comes out October 4th. Um, we've already uh, turned in and done in the done the uh, content edits for the, <laughs> the next book, which is the Veltal File, which is another um, sci-fi police procedural featuring Isaac and Susan. Cool. Um, and uh, I've turned in uh, the Dyson file, which is another police procedural <laughs> featuring Isaac and Susan. Um, that's my first uh, solo novel. Uh, for that's your for first Bain. for Bane, yes. Um, and uh, let's see here, uh, David and I have um, we're we're getting close to uh, starting to. Getting near the finishing, finishing up the uh, the outlining for uh, book six in the Gordian Division series. Uh, David, do you want to mention the title? Well, I'll let you go. Yeah. All right. The the Thermopylae Protocol. Yes. So that one's it's going to be another protocol book, another big, you know, big problems, but. Uh, Isaac and Susan will uh, also be a part of it. So both of the tracks will be uh, woven into this one. So we're going to bring both of the casts together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're, we're working hard on having the casts of both involved in, in the ongoing story tracks as part of the keeping them connected right. for the reader. Right. Neat. And you, David? Uh, let's see. I'm going to be the Liberty Con uh, special guest of honor. Sharon is fond of saying there are special Olympics, there are special guests, you know, kind of thing. Um, we're going to do uh, uh, Marcon up in Ohio. Um, and Sharon is the keeper of the con schedule, and I didn't ask her about the others uh we 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 skipped dragon con this year there was just so much going on uh we're gonna try really hard uh to make dragon con next year um i think we're doing fantasy oh we're doing uh 20 books uh las vegas in um november yeah i know i know we're doing that um and uh I should mention that although the contract has not yet, I think, been written, uh, Tony uh, is committed to, uh, I told you I was inviting uh, uh, Jacob uh, into the Honorverse. Uh, Jacob and I are going to write the story of Edward Sakanami. 
which is something that people have wanted for quite some time. Um, and uh, we're planning it as a trilogy right now. Of course, I originally planned only six books in the Honorverse, so one never knows where that might go, you know, kind of thing. Um, cool. Yeah, and uh, Tim Zahn and... Um, and Tom Pope and I are working on the next over there. I have to get with Jane to do the next of the Star Kingdom. Um, there's some stuff going on with Tor uh, over here that we won't talk about here because they're the you know uh, they're the they're the uncle you don't talk about at Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, as soon as I can get myself oh i'm i'm working on uh an honorverse novel that uh, had not originally been planned uh which will uh i don't uh if you've read um the newest uh liberty con anthology uh my novella in there the the travesty of nature uh, -huh. uh is being expanded into a full length novel um so that that's that's actually what i'm working on uh right this minute but uh my next main project after that uh has to be the uh sequel to road the, the sequel to the road to hell with uh joel um of which probably 40 percent or a little more is already written uh by her and it'll have to be tweaked some when we start putting everything together. But it's basically it's basically good. Um, I've got a lot of stuff going on. Richard Fox and I are supposed to get started on the next on the sequel to Governor. Um, the, the outlines there it needs to be written, um, and he will probably do uh, a draft of two-thirds of the book which will then come to me and i'll do the you know um but uh yeah i just actually i i there was one, one yeah one project that i i forgot to mention uh so uh i actually have uh two uh solo books uh under contract for bane and i'm going to be turning in the the second one uh fairly soon um, essentially, the, the first draft is is written. I'm just doing cleanup, and it is uh, going to be my my first fully original uh, work uh, for for Bain. Actually, my first non collaborative work since 2014, I think. <laughs> um, it's called Shattered Soul, uh, spelled S O L, so the sun. And it uh, it's uh, basically Firefly meets Ringworld. Cool. <laughs> I that think sounds, so. <laughs> that sounds scary. Okay. But uh, at least you're not taking out the entire universe this time. That's oh, no, 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 no. So. Just, just our little corner of it, yes. Hey. All right, well, yeah. thank you very much. Uh, this has been the Bane Free Radio Hour with your host, Griffin Barber, and uh, our wonderful guests, Jacob Hollow and David Weber. Thank, thank you for you having us. Yeah. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. 
It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Ilona, it turned out, was a walking mag card of information on the Tyler Mansion. She knew its outer appearance, the pre-war layout of its major gardens, and the sizes and approximate locations of some of its rooms. She could sketch the stonework designs on the five-meter-high outer wall, as well as giving the wall's dimensions, and had at least a general idea as to the total area of both house and grounds. It impressed Johnny tremendously, until it occurred to him that all her information would have fit quite comfortably in the sort of celebrity snoop magazines that seemed to exist in one form or another all over the Dominion. The sort of thing both he and an enterprising gatecrasher would have found more useful, security systems, weapons and placements and the like, were conspicuous by their absence. Eventually and regretfully, he decided she was simply one of those avid followers of the Tyler mystique whose existence she'd already hinted at. Still, he'd been taught how to make inferences from the physical appearance of structures, and even given that his data was second-hand, he was able to form a reasonable picture of what Tyler had set up to defend his home. And the picture wasn't an especially encouraging one. The main gate is shaped like this, Ilona said, sketching barely visible lines with her finger on the tabletop. It's supposed to be electronically locked and made with 20-centimeter-thick chirelium steel, same as the interior section of the wall. Briefly, Johnny tried to calculate how long it would take to punch a hole through that much chirelium with his anti-armor laser. The number came out on the order of several hours. Any of the house's fancy stonework on the outer side? Not on the gate itself, but there are two relief carvings flanking it on the wall. About here and here, she pointed. Sensor clusters, most likely, and probably weapons as well. Facing inward as well as outward. No way of knowing but it wasn't likely to matter with twenty centimeters of chirelium blocking the way. Well, that only leaves going over the wall, he sighed. What's he got up there? As far as I know, nothing. Johnny frowned. He's got to have some defenses up there, Alona. Five-meter walls haven't been proof against attackers since ladders were invented. Um, what about the corners? Any raised stonework or anything there? Nope, she was emphatic. Nothing but flat wall all the way around the grounds. Which meant no photoelectric laser beam set up along the wall. Could Tyler really have left such an obvious loophole in his defenses? Of course, anything coming over the wall could be targeted by the house's lasers, but that approach depended on temperamental and potentially jammable high-speed electronics. And even if they worked properly, a fair amount of the shot was likely to expend its energy on other than the intended target. Sloppy and dangerous. No, Tyler must have had something else in mind. But what? And then a pair of stray facts intersected in Johnny's mind. Tyler had built his mansion along Reginine lines, and Johnny's late teammate, Parnofki, had been from that same world. Had he ever said anything that might provide a clue? He had. The day of the trainee's first modest test, the one Johnny had afterward nearly broken Viljo's face over, our wall lasers, Nofki had commented, 
point up, not across. And then, of course, it was obvious, obvious and sobering. Instead of four lasers arranged to fire horizontally along the walls, Tyler had literally hundreds of the things lined up together like logs in an old palisade, aiming straight up from inside the wall. A horribly expensive barrier, but one that could defend against low projectiles and groundhog missiles, as well as grappler-equipped intruders. Quick, operationally simple, and virtually foolproof. And almost undoubtedly the Troft's planned death trap. Johnny swallowed, the irony of it bitter on his tongue. This was exactly what he'd wanted, some insight into how the aliens expected to stop him, and now that he knew, the whole thing looked more hopeless than ever. Unless he could somehow get to the control circuitry for those lasers, there was no way he and Alona would get beyond the wall without being solidly slagged. He became aware that Alona was watching him, a look of strained patience on her face. Well, any chance of getting through the gate? I doubt it, Johnny shook his head. But we won't have to. Up and over is a far better bet. Up and over? You mean climb a five-meter wall? I mean jump it. I think I can manage it without too much trouble. In actual fact, the wall's height was the least of their troubles, but there was no point telling the hidden listeners that. What about the defenses you said might be there? Shouldn't pose any real problem, Johnny lied, again for the Troft's benefit. He didn't dare appear too naive. It might arouse their suspicions. I suspect Tyler's got his wall lasers built into elevating turrets at the corners. With all that stonework available to hide sensors in, there'd be no problem getting them up in time if someone started to climb in. I haven't seen that sort of arrangement on Adirondack before, but it's a logical extension of your usual defense laser setup, especially for someone with the classical aesthetics Tyler seems to have. Actually, I'm a lot more worried about getting to the wall in the first place. I want you to tell me everything you can remember about the route the troughs used to get you to this room. She nodded, and as she launched into a listing of rooms, hallways, and staircases, he knew she was satisfied with his spun-sugar theory. Now, if only he'd similarly convinced the troughs to let them get all the way to the death trap. And if he could figure out a way through it. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber and Jacob Hollow for sitting down with Griffin Barber these last two weeks. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>